She's sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. The challenge here is we know the problem with border security. We need our borders stronger, strong, secure, especially with the caravan and others. Uh, in the House version, we have $5 billion. The Senate version has $1.6. And what the president is saying is, I want a deal. The economy is now in a 3% plus trajectory. Uh, since President Trump came in, the seven quarters, uh, we're running, I believe the number is 3.1%, and it's 3.3% so far for 20, 2018. Well, more questions after transcripts of Jim Comey's closed-door meeting with lawmakers. They were officially released yesterday, and the former FBI director admitting nearly he couldn't recall or remember more than 200 times. Well, he wouldn't answer a lot of questions about the FISA process, but I think it's notable that in the information presented to the FISA court, there was not an accurate description of who paid for what. This is another area where Comey's testimony today contradicted his own lawyer. Well, the words that best describe Comey's testimony are selective amnesia. And now, Stacey Washington. Welcome back to the program. Stacey Washington, host of Stacey on the Right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. I'm also the co-chair of uh, Project 21 National Center's uh, Advisory Council. And I got to say, I'm pretty happy that um, even though the news media isn't talking about it, President Trump is growing the U.S. economy at a rate greater than $700 billion a year. Uh, 3.7% GDP growth on an economy of $22 trillion is more than $700 billion. Um, so we're talking about projections from the IMF putting our GDP growth for the next two quarters at 3.7%. So, uh, you know, time to, time to pump the brakes a little bit on the mass hysteria over the stock market and corrections and things that are going on, profit-taking, et cetera, and just kind of enjoy the fact that these policies are enlarging the U.S. economy year over year at a rate that compares to approximately half of Canada's entire economy and two-thirds of the economy of Mexico. I'll give that to you one more time. The U.S. economy is growing at a rate that compares to one-half of Canada's entire economy and two-thirds of the entire economy of the country of Mexico. So... I'm going to focus on that and lift my hands in the sanctuary and say, thank you, Lord, for that good news, because you, you don't know when the valley's coming. So while you're in the, the fat of the land, you need to be thankful. Thank the Lord. Give praises to his name for the growth and do as much as you can to be a part of that growth, you know, while you can. Meanwhile, uh, how is he doing that? Well, if you look around, other developed nations are stagnant. They're not growing. Um, they're rioting in France. They're burning that beautiful place. Just they're, they're lighting it up because they are sick and tired of elected politicians who fly around in private jets over in France telling them that they need to pay more for their diesel. They are paying so much that their construction workers in France actually carry their 80 pounds of tools on public transportation because they can't afford to put gas in their cars and their trucks to drive to the jobs to do their work. No wonder they're riding and setting it off over there. Meanwhile, you have Donald Trump over here. He said no to the Paris Climate Accord. He has revamped. NAFTA's no more. Canada and Mexico are going to have to play in our 
sandbox on our terms. President Trump is stopping the export of American wealth. Meanwhile, he's saying to other countries, yes, we want to do business with you, but stop stealing our intellectual property, China. Yes, we want to bring our goods and services into North Korea. We want to bring your little tin pot dictatorship into the modern era. Let's do some business together. Just stop shooting off those rockets. And every other nation where there's a problem, he's like, yes, handle your business. Take care of your problems. Worry about yourself. And also, we're going to do things in a way that benefits America. What's not to like? You don't have to like Donald Trump. You don't have to do, you don't have to say his name. Please do not trigger yourself into Trump derangement syndrome. Simply acknowledge that the economy is booming and everyone's getting to participate in it because a good economy is not a respecter of persons or ethnic groups. It just says, hey, do you want to work? Bring your skills and talents to the marketplace. Offer them up and see if people don't partake. That's what's happening. So that and more. We're going to actually get into, we heard a little little snippet of audio coming into the top of the program about Comey's lack of memory. Now, this is a man who wrote a book about his experiences in the White House. This is a man who has Trump derangement syndrome and hates the president. This is a guy who actually has spent a, a huge amount of his time talking about this same subject that he now can't remember anything. So you got Representative Goodlatte talking about Comey's lack of memory and how stunning it was. It's number three. Well, the biggest takeaway is uh, that former FBI Director James Comey, with regard to the two most important investigations, certainly during his tenure uh, as FBI Director into the Clinton email matter and into the uh, Russia collusion matter, uh, said, as you've noted, uh, I don't recall, I don't remember, or I don't know, 245 times. Mm. Uh, that is truly stunning since the fellow wrote a book about all of this. Uh, you'd think that he'd remember more in terms of the questions. Obviously, we have him coming back again uh, a week from tomorrow, December 17th, and we have a lot more questions for him uh, at that time. So I think we should uh, reserve judgment on that until after we have had the opportunity to finish yeah. our examination of him. But it certainly is disappointing and disturbing uh, that he can't answer our questions. Mr. Not only is it disturbing, but you just wonder, what does it take to get placed in contempt of Congress when you know somebody is lying to you? When you know somebody is like, oh, I just don't remember. Hundreds of times he said he didn't remember. Hundreds of times. And he's due to come back. So what's funny about it is he may not remember much, but they're still going to have him back in so they can ask him some more questions. Now, Representative Getz had some comments on Comey's testimony as well. Let's get into that, and then we'll take some calls as if, if you have any questions about it or want to talk about it. It's number six. If the president of the United States committed a crime in Jim Comey's presence, it's bizarre that Comey mm -hmm. never told anyone yeah. above him in the chain of command. And Sessions had not recused himself at this point in time. Comey used a phrase in the hearing today. He called Sessions uh, on the cusp of recusal. And that was Comey's basis for not telling Sessions what had happened. But when you only are speaking to mm -hmm. your subordinates, it's a different thing than elevating something that you would think would be ripe enough for a, a critical decision. Hmm. So if you're thinking about what is, what, is, what is driving this, well, it was a political operation, and Comey was participating in it as well. Now, he was pretty inept at it. He made decisions that 
went against what his original goal was, which was to help elect Hillary Clinton. You know, and it's kind of funny that that was his goal as he was operating as a Republican. His, his public face was that of a Republican. Yet at, in the end, he really showed himself to be the worst kind of Hillary sycophant, which if you went a little deeper and looked at his background, he's always been around the Clintons. He's always worked around them. He's a career person in Washington, D.C., and the Clintons have been a power couple in Washington, D.C. for decades, and he's been in and out of their orbit through business transactions and private dealings for all of that time. So he's, he's not this upstanding Republican guy who just happens to hate Donald Trump. No, no, he was an operative on behalf of the Clintons. He was integral to making sure that the woman he thought was going to be the next president of the United States wouldn't be prosecuted for her wrongdoing on Benghazi or the email scandal, any of it. She, she lacked intent. That is the only conversation. Well, I can't say it's the only one. It's the primary conversation, the primary reasoning behind um, her not being prosecuted. He said she was inept. She seemed unable to decipher classification markings. We know that's not true. She was a senator. She's been deciphering classification markings for well over 10 years. By the time he sat down with her to interview her, not under oath at her house, she'd been deciphering classification markings for well over 10 years. So how could it be true that she could not tell what the C in parentheses meant? How could it be true that she didn't understand that sending a facsimile over an unsecured fax line was a violation of classification? Um, there's just no way that's true. So he said she lacked intent because the evidence was there for prosecution. Let's go to the phones. We have Janice in Texas. Thanks for calling the show today, Janice. Hello? Hi. Thanks for calling the show. Uh, good to hear. I love your show, Stacey. Thank you. I would like to ask a question and make a statement. All right. Shoot. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Okay. I want to know what, <coughs> what or when will the government pay Social Security back? Because way back years ago, they borrowed millions and millions of dollars to pay the debt for the government that they claim they were going to pay back and they never have paid it back and they never have mentioned it again. I don't think they're going to pay it back. Um, they're going to continue to borrow money to keep Social Security working, but when it goes insolvent, I don't know what the plan is. I have no idea. So th I don't, they're not paying it back. There's no paying it back um, because where would they get the money to pay it back from? They'd have to make government cuts and people would get mad about it because they want their library funding and all these special projects. And so there's no way they're cutting enough to pay it back. And there's no way they're going to borrow enough to pay it all back. They're just going to say all of a sudden, you know, we need to confiscate people's 401k plans. They've talked about that. Democrats have talked about taking private 401k plans and nationalizing them so they have some money to pull from to pay Social Security. They've talked about doing that. Um, so, yeah, that's not going to happen. Yeah, but they 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 uh, swept it under the rug and they haven't mentioned it. But they're always saying how Social Security 
is in debt. Hmm. <laughs> well, and that's it's, it's... what really makes me mad. Yeah, it's pretty enraging. Definitely uh, something that people are upset about. Thank you for calling the show today, Janice. I, everybody's upset about it, but we we keep sending people to Washington, D.C. who are really interested in enriching themselves, people who are there um, to participate in the madness, not to clean it up, which is why so many people who are elected loathe Donald Trump. Because in their minds, someone who claims to be there to do what he says he's there to do that makes him an enemy, a part of the problem. If, if he's really there to shrink government down and to supercharge the economy so Americans can see the difference between what the government does, what it's mandated to do, and what the economy and the private sector do and are, are mandated to do, that's, that's where people start changing their minds. They're like, wow, you know what? You know what's great? Not having all these regulations on my business. You know what's awesome? Letting the economic engine flow not looking to government to do everything. You know, I'm, I'm making enough money now in my business that I want to start a philanthropic organization in my spare time, or I've made enough of my business. I'm retired now and I want to take some of my earnings and I want to do something philanthropic. And this is not, this, this wouldn't be my choice. I would not be funding libraries and museums with my, you know, retirement or, or, you know, extra money that I would make from a business that was successful um, I would much rather fund pregnancy resource centers and and organizations that help parents find Christian educational options for their kids, et cetera, et cetera. But for those who are interested in funding the library and these things that are right now taxpayer funded, that's where you see government not shrink, but get pushed out of the way. Rather than having tax dollars funding the zoo and the library, and, the, and you're probably thinking, well, Stacey, you keep bringing these up, but they're a drop in the hat. They're not a drop in the hat. They represent hundreds of dollars in taxes a year on every family in this metro area. Hundreds of dollars a year that we pay, whether you go to the library or not, whether you go to the zoo or not, whether you hit the museums or not. Those should be privately funded. Those hundreds of dollars per year would go to other things if families had them back in their budget. And I don't mean other things like more clothes and more shoes, although some people would do those. And even if that's all they did with it, is buy more food, clothes, and shoes, it would stimulate the economy. Better than paying for something that should be privately funded. All right, when we get back, we're going to talk about the House Democrats having a really rough week. The 2020 Democrats who are running for office. <laughs> Stay there. Maybe you've been hearing the messages from Preborn asking listeners to join together to help save babies' lives through ultrasound, and you're not sure how to respond. Here's the story of one woman who took that step. I heard about Mission Preborn just before December of last year and asked my husband if we could give at least 140. Just last week, we received our packet. My husband came in the house and he was telling me, this is our pre-born packet, the ultrasounds. I started crying without even seeing them. Not only were there five babies, but one of the moms was having twins. We were just elated for that. For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds, and you'll receive a story and a picture of babies' lives that were spared. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your sponsorship goes to saving babies. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or go to preborn.com. 
This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. Life expectancy for Americans continues to decline. The latest report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention put the bad news in perspective. The researchers say that this is the longest sustained decline in expected lifespan at birth in a century. At the turn of the last century, American men were fighting in World War I, and back home, other Americans were confronting the worst flu epidemic in modern history. Last year, there were more deaths than the previous year. That partially reflects the fact that the nation is growing older and aging, but the focus of our attention should be on the younger age groups that are also dying due to such things as suicide and drug overdoses. If you look at the top 10 leading causes of death, only the cancer rate fell in 2017. There were increases in seven others. Suicides, strokes, diabetes, Alzheimer's, flu and pneumonia, chronic lower respiratory diseases and unintentional injuries. The greatest concern, at least for me, are the deaths due to despair. The suicide rate has increased over the last few decades for both men and women, but the increase in suicides among men has been even more dramatic. Along with that has been the significant increase in the number of deaths due to drug overdoses. In previous commentaries, I've documented that more Americans die from drug overdoses each year than all the men who died during the entire Vietnam War. Remember that these deaths of despair are taking place during peace and prosperity. We aren't engaged in a major war. We aren't in the midst of a recession. In fact, most Americans are doing much better economically. I believe Christians must preach the gospel like never before and provide hope and an eternal perspective to so many Americans who may be the next death of despair statistics. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. Take Kirby and the Point of View team with you on the go with the Point of View app. Search for Point of View Radio at the Apple or Google Play stores. You can download episodes of Stacy of the Right from the podcast page on AFR.net or UrbanFamilyTalk.com. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Senator Elizabeth Warren may be running for president in 2020, but her hometown newspaper is warning against it. She has become a divisive figure. Uh, the New York Times had kind of a blistering story today about the whole DNA test thing. Advisors close to Mrs. Warren, Ms. Warren say she's privately expressed concern that she may have damaged her relationships to Native American groups. Back in 2016, the Globe encouraged her to run. The board now says she, quote, missed her moment. Wow. A top aide for Senator Kamala Harris is resigning as a harassment settlement comes to light. Larry Wallace was a longtime staff member. Wallace placing his printer underneath his desk on the floor and then ordering Hartley to put paper in Wallace's printer. They've now settled that lawsuit and Wallace is gone. Senator Harris says she didn't know anything about it. Did you see Kirsten Gillibrand's controversial tweet, I'm assuming, right? So she says this, the future is female, intersectional, powered by our belief in one another. Then in, okay, <laughs> your groan, your audible groan. She seems to have this really dumbed down version of what feminism should sound like. 43 out of 76 Democratic Party leaders in Iowa said they prefer a young candidate, which could complicate the early frontrunner's plans. 76-year-old Joe Biden said this week, quote, I think I'm the most qualified person in the country to be president. Former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick saying now a 2020 campaign for president is just not for me. Stormy Daniels attorney Michael Avenatti posting a statement on Twitter announcing he will not run for president in 2020 against President Trump. Suspense is over. <laughs> Were we ever in suspense? So you got Kirsten Gillibrand, Michael Avenatti, uh, Kamala Harris, 
it's it's a parade of horribles. Individuals who should never even consider running for the presidency, Elizabeth Warren included, all pinning their you know political aspirations for power grabbing and for lording themselves over us. Uh, where are these good upstanding people who have a you know a moral center that is right? Individuals who have a proven track record of doing great things in their career fields or wherever they're operating right now, whether they're politicians or not. People who don't have a set agenda uh, for climate redistribution or um, abortion support or what have you. Where are they? Probably cowering in the background thinking, you know, dismissively kind of shrugging their shoulders and saying, that is a job that I could do. That is a job that I actually could see myself doing well, the presidency, but I'm not going to bother to put my family through what happens to people who decide to run for that office. And so in that climate, we're going to get the worst of the worst. And that's what the Democrats are currently trolling through. Joe Biden, I was wondering, why is the meme of him sniffing women's hair from behind, gripping them by the shoulders and menacingly leaning, menacingly leaning in over them and, you know, kind of diving into their necks and gripping little girls from behind on their shoulders. Why is that meme back? It's like everywhere you, everywhere you look online on social media, there he is smiling into some woman's terrified face from behind. Well, it's back because he's talking about running for the presidency. It's, I know it's silly. I know you're, you've got to be thinking right now, you're in the car and you're driving along, you're thinking, Joe Biden, that's the best they've got? Well, I mean, he's not the worst they've got, uh, but he apparently is one of the best because he's thinking about running. Hillary Clinton is still banding about the idea of running, not because she has so much support within the party, but because continuing to talk about running keeps her out of trouble, keeps her in the, the you know, wind sock of power. You know, it's, people are still, you know, looking in her direction and longingly, you know, reminiscing about the days when it might have been her. So ugh, just ridiculous. So I promised to get to, we have a couple of stories. You're wondering about this principal who banned Christmas at her elementary school building. We're going to get to that. But right now, let's let's quickly run through the details. Um, and I'm sorry, I think I missed a call from someone who was interested in, they, they, they heard me talking about this Kavanaugh joining the liberals to protect the pro-Planned Parenthood ruling. So here's what's happened. A number of states across the country have defunded Planned Parenthood through Medicare reimbursements. And Medicare reimbursements actually contribute billion a year to Planned Parenthood's annual work. So when they say, we're only getting $558 million a year from the taxpayers, yeah, that's all they're getting from that one line item in our federal budget. That's the line item they fight to protect. But they get $1.2 billion in Medicare reimbursements. So you got Justices Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, and Justice Clarence Thomas dissenting away from the remaining liberal judges, plus the two who joined them, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, and because they they didn't say he joined, they said he joined the liberal wing. So they have Judge Roberts in the liberal wing now? (laughs) He's just automatically a de facto liberal now? I guess that's a whole nother segment. What we need to do is get somebody from Heritage on here um, to talk about this. We need to get somebody from Heritage. 
Um, and and I'll, I'll work on doing that. So Roberts and Kavanaugh are apparently afraid to take on abortion-related questions in the aftermath of Kavanaugh's contentious confirmation. Meanwhile, the court's junior justice has generally kept a low profile since taking the bench in October. Now, Monday's cases arose when Republican state leaders in Louisiana and Kansas stripped Planned Parenthood from state Medicaid funding. I said Medicare, Medicaid funding after a pro-life advocacy group presented evidence that the abortion provider was harvesting and selling fetal materials. Now, Planned Parenthood disputes the accuracy of these claims. We know they're true. We know they're true. The videos are out there. Watch the videos. Don't be fooled. They're true. So the legal question on Monday's cases was whether Medicaid recipients can challenge the disqualification of a provider under the Medicaid law. So it wasn't actually specifically about abortion. It was about whether or not Medicaid is forced to fund any provider that you select. Now, the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals sided with Planned Parenthood on that question back in June of 2017, prompting an appeal to the Supreme Court. The ruling is now left in place because the justices refused to take the case. Pro-life groups have quickly swooped in. Marjorie Dannenfelser said, we're disappointed the Supreme Court declined to hear this case. She's the president of the Susan B. Anthony list. Um, You know, the Trump administration is currently formulating a new regulation, federal, called the Protect Life Rule, which would forbid public funding of Planned Parenthood under Title X. And that's important. And I want to see the president follow through on that and make that happen. But, you know... Wow. Brett Kavanaugh. We had our shirts. We had, you know, we we beat down the doors. We prayed. We fasted. We I mean, there were prayer, literal prayer groups. I had all kinds of text messages about praying for the Kavanaugh's and their family. We talked about it here on the show. Now, here he is on the Supreme Court. And I'm not talking about him being partisan. I'm talking about him siding with you know a case is coming before you that has been decided incorrectly and you decide I'm not going to, I don't want to hear it. He was the, so this is why we need when the next liberal judge comes off the court, we got to replace that one too because our conservative judges just aren't reliable. They're just not reliable. I'm not going to get into whether or not he's a Bush this or that. I don't, I don't care about any of that. I know that associations matter, but in the end, he promised to adhere to the Constitution. That's supposed to usurp any of his previous allegiances to this family or that. Disappointed in Judge Kavanaugh today. Justice Kavanaugh. We all expended our political capital and we went, we, we went straight to the gates of heaven and said, please, Lord, please save this man's, not his, just his reputation, but his judicial career. Save his family. Protect them. I hope the caller is correct that he's just timidly getting his toes wet and he needs time to strengthen up. But I, I want to, where's the guy who was arguing his case about how he was innocent? Where's that lion? Where's that warrior when we need him? All right, so turning to this Christmas story, I mean, I would say I can't believe this, but I actually can. This is in Nebraska, Elkhorn, Nebraska near Omaha, and the principal is Jennifer Sinclair. She's the principal of Manchester Elementary School, 
She uh, says she stumbled over a big rock when she banned several elements of Christmas in order to be inclusive and culturally sensitive. She says it's not okay for one kid to give another kid a Christmas ornament. And when that kid says, I don't celebrate Christmas, they say, well, hang it someplace in your house because it's still a nice ornament. She says that's not good enough. You can't have that stuff at school. So she said that here's some stuff you can't have at school. No Christmas trees. Santa Claus, um, candy canes, because the candy cane is an upside down J and stands for Jesus. And the red stripe stands for the blood. And, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's what she said in her email to the parents. She said, you can have snow people, Yetis, snowflakes, Olaf, the little character from the movie Frozen, gingerbread people. So once she banned the stuff, Parents start getting upset and getting bent out of shape. And so she sent a memo out and she said, I have unknowingly awoken a sleeping giant with many of you. I apologize for the stress that Christmas holiday Grinch Santa tree emails and conversations have caused you. I will do my best to communicate the expectation from here on out, which aligns with my interpretation of our expectations as a public school, which seeks to be inclusive and culturally sensitive to all of our students. I feel uncomfortable that I have to get this specific, but for everyone's comfort, I will. So the Elkhorn School District official said they disagreed with her decision. They say she went too far with the email and they put out a statement in which they say the memo does not reflect the policy of Elkhorn Public Schools regarding holiday symbols in the school. The district has since gone on to clarify expectations and provide further direction to staff in alignment with district policy. Now this is at the Elkhorn Elementary, Manchester Elementary, it was just one principal over her elementary school building. But, um, yeah, acceptable practices, snowmen, snow women, snow people, snowflakes, gingerbread people, holidays around the world, sledding, hot chocolate, polar bears, penguins, scarves, boots, earmuffs, and hats, yetis, and the Olaf from Frozen. She said, focus on snow different holidays, winter activities, and imaginary creatures. Instead of focusing on what she said was the candy cane, a Christmas-related symbol that historically has the shape of a J for Jesus, red for the blood of Christ, white for the symbol of his resurrection. Even if your candy canes are white and green or yellow and green, they're still symbolic of Jesus Christ. And red and green items and reindeer, which symbolize traditional Christmas colors. This is the problem. I'm glad the parents smacked back. I'm glad they were like, no, mm -mm, you're not stripping Christmas away from us. We're going to have our Christmas because Christmas is inclusive. The, the best thing about Christmas is that you don't have to be a believer to attend a Christmas service. You don't have to be a practicing Christian to go to church on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day or the Sunday before Christmas or the Sunday after or the Wednesday night service before a candlelight service. You don't have to be a Christian to go to any of those services and enjoy the, uh, you know, the, if there's a Christmas play or there's a presentation or the sermon that's preached that day. You can come and partake. You can eat the cookies. You can be at the tree. I'm, I don't know. Was, was I on air here? Because I, I do some interviews outside of the show. Uh, I was talking about how I was in Hobby Lobby last week and I went into the Christmas section, which is large sized. It's, it's great. You guys, like if you're looking for something, especially like this year seems to be this whole 
tin and aluminum thing where they have the little aluminum houses and the little tin houses, tin stars. It's all Christmas ornaments, but there it seems like aluminum and tin seems to be a thing this year for a rustic look for your tree. So anyway, I was over there looking at all that stuff. And I was at Hobby Lobby twice. I'm ashamed. I was there twice. And um, both times I saw ladies of Middle Eastern origin. And I assumed, you know, that they were in the section intentionally because I'm kind of hard to miss that you're in the Christmas section. And they were walking through the Christmas section of Hobby Lobby picking up items. And that's not the only time that's ever happened. When I used to shop at Target, this story is five years old, but it's still applicable. Um, Yeah, five years yeah, five years because it's been, uh, yeah, it's been five years since I've been in a Target. And the last time I was in was the springtime. So it was a Christmas over five years ago. I was in a Target buying just a couple of small items on my list uh, for like groceries. And I'd stopped in the Christmas section. And then I went up to the front counter. I turned around and the people behind me were, it was a, a Middle Eastern couple. And they had a basket full of Christmas decorations. I mean, and not not just green items or cream colored items. I mean, red, blue, not not blue, red, green, white, gold accents. They had garland. They had a small tree, like a desktop tree. They had all the fixings, ornaments, red, the red shiny ornaments, the little, uh, they're like glass ones. They had all that in their basket. And when I glanced back and I looked at their basket, I looked at them, they were deep in conversation about how many more things they needed to buy outside of what was in their basket. And I just looked and I turned around because it it matters not to me whether they look Middle Eastern or not. They're living here in America. They want to celebrate Christmas. Come on in. Celebrate it with us. You never know. You might actually get into it enough and get into a church service and actually think, you know what? I don't just want to be here just sitting around listening and enjoying myself. I think I want to be a real part of this thing. I think I want to come on in. And my response to that is come on in. Get in here. Yeah. So what is the problem with the children who celebrated and the children who don't enjoying the reason why we're going to have a couple of weeks off here in, in, in a little bit? I don't understand why we wouldn't. What, what, what is the problem? I'm not Irish and I've worn green tops on uh, St. Patrick's Day. And I love a good Irish pub. Oh, my goodness. I will eat at an Irish pub. I will eat. Yes. When, in fact, my husband and I second date was at an Irish pub down in Florida. The second date we ever went on, and it's called McGuire's Irish Pub down in Destin. And the big deal about it is that they have dollar bills covering the ceiling and walls of the entire joint. And when you go for your first time, you staple a dollar bill to the wall. So we stapled a dollar bill on our second date there. And then 20 years later, on our 20th anniversary, we stapled a $20 bill to the wall. And a couple of other times we've been there, we've stapled a dollar bill to the wall. And we ain't Irish in the least. Come on in, Christmas celebrators. Bring it on in. It's for you, too. We'll be back with more after this. This is Just a Minute with Stacey Washington. How can we bless our husbands when we are in our prayer time? By interceding on their behalf. We can ask God to make our husbands the head and not the tail, above and not beneath. We can besiege God to make them known in the gate. We can ask God to show us ways that we can bless our husbands in our speech, and our actions and the way that we care for them. We can ask our Father in Heaven to shower husbands with new ideas for business and ministry opportunities and for God to bless them and make them wise and lengthen their days. Remember, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall remain stable and fixed under the shadow of the Almighty. 
no foe can stand against our God. The prescription for today's man-hating culture is praying wives, interceding before God daily. I'm Stacy Washington. Find out more at StacyOnTheRight.com. American Family Radio. Samaritan's Purse. And your family. Together, we can bring good news and great joy to needy children. Simply pack an Operation Christmas Child shoebox with toys, school supplies, and hygiene items. Then drop off your shoebox gift during National Collection Week. Visit AFR.net, click the Operation Christmas Child banner, and then get packing. Lonnie Poindexter. Don't ever ask God for patience. <laughs> Just say, oh, Lord, help me to be more patient. No, don't do that. Well, why, Lonnie? Why shouldn't I do that? He'll give it to you, but you're not going to like how you get it. <laughs> well, Lonnie, what do you mean? How do you get patience? Trials and tribulations, my brethren. That's how you get it. Lion Chasers. Weekday mornings at 10 Central on Urban Family Talk. The Week Ahead. Light the last candle on the menorah. Monday is the eighth and final day of Hanukkah. Jewish people come together to remember the miracle of oil and celebrate the Festival of Lights. Also Monday, it's Human Rights Day. Established in 1948, it marks the UN's adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Hump Day just got a little sweeter. Wednesday, Krispy Kreme bringing back their best deal. You can get a dozen donuts for just a buck. Customers can pick any flavor and combination and add a second round of original glazed for only a dollar more. The limit is two per customer. Sunday night marks an out-of-this-world phenomenon. Grab a telescope and you could see the brightest comet of the year. Scientists say it will be one of the ten closest comet approaches to the Earth since 1950. And that's a look at your week ahead. I'm Jack Callahan, Fox News. This is Stacy on the Right with Stacy Washington on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. The incoming Speaker of the House has said building a wall along our southern border is immoral. Immoral. What are you looking at, Nancy Pelosi? Look at the caravan. Look at the charge against the border. Look at the caravans that, that are to come. Look at the holes in our border security. So here's the problem. You got the Democratic leader to be in the House calling border security a wall component immoral. If I'm President Trump Tuesday, I would tell Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer that we're going to uh, build a wall where it makes sense. If I were the president, I would dig in and not give in on additional wall funding. I'd want the whole five billion because the caravan is a game changer. 1.6 is available to the president. He wants five. And after the caravan, if you don't see the need for additional border security, you're just not paying much attention. So, Mr. President, dig in. Do not give in when it comes to the wall. Uh, Yeah. I think he's got that right. Um, we have an option. Uh, really, it's it's not an option. It's a mandate. You, if When you run on something, you should feel obligated to see it through. And if we have to resort to kind of, uh, you know, using the rules of the House and the Senate and going back and forth during the lame duck to try to find an end run around the obstruction of the Democrats, then so be it. That's what those rules are there for so that you can 
figure a way out to do the thing that you need to get done. Um, so he has a little bit more to say about this. He's talking a little bit more about the border wall and the funding, et cetera. It's Graham, too. Well, you're going to have the Speaker of the House who will be in charge next year. What about next year? So here's what's happening in the Senate. We need 60 votes right. to get $5 billion. If I were the president, I would tell the Democrats, I want $5 billion uh, for wall security because we for border security, including a wall, because we need it from the threats we're facing, this caravan and others to follow. And I'd put DACA on the table. There's 700,000 young people uh, who came here on the average age of six, have got no place to go. Mm. They're in the DACA program. If I were the president, I'd say, I want two years of wall funding. And I'll give uh, legal status to the DACA recipients. Yeah. That's a good deal for the country. And uh, let's just see what happens. But the president is in a good spot here. Mm -hmm. He needs to dig in and not give in when it comes to wall funding and put DACA on the table and see what Nancy Pelosi says well, then. So uh, the DACA problem isn't really that big of a problem for the Democrats if it's solved. And what do I mean by that? Well, as long as it's still an issue, Democrats can run on fixing it. But if Trump works with the Democrats and fixes DACA by giving in and giving these people some kind of legal status, then Democrats can't say, well, we're the ones who are going to fix this for you. And that's why they're no longer talking about it. Their activists have shut up about it. They don't care. Because the people are already here, and in their minds, if they can't do it now, they'll wait until they have a Democrat who's president. And just like DACA itself, the program, it's unconstitutional. It's not something that the president can do in and of himself through an executive order. The same things they keep saying about the president not being able to adjust asylum laws through executive order or rulemaking apply to DACA. But they got some lower court judge to rule that DACA is constitutional and to enjoin the president from doing anything about DACA, changing it, adjusting it, even though DACA is an executive order. Do you, do you realize that? DACA is an executive order. And as such, the same way that it was implemented, pen and phone, it should be able to be eliminated, pen and phone. It is the purview of the president to write executive orders, and if they are not found to be unconstitutional or stricken down, then... They're allowed to stand. But my question is, after watching Kavanaugh bow down to the Democrats on this Planned Parenthood thing, are we going to see him do the same thing when the DACA, uh, there's, there's going to be an appeal on that ruling that said that the president couldn't end DACA. Are we going to see Kavanaugh say we're not going to take that either? Like, who is this person? Who's going to, like, you know, tap on the shoulder at the, at the Wegmans or whatever the shopping place is down there where they live and just say, hey, uh, dude, what were we doing? Praying for you and fasting and all that stuff. What, what, are you letting us down, bro. What's up? What's your deal? Not rudely, not accosting him, but just asking him, dude, what are you thinking? Are, are you now having dinner with the liberals and stuff? Like hanging out with them and, and plotting your strategy going forward? Have they co-opted you? Are they blackmailing you? What's going on? So there's also this story, which I thought was pretty fascinating. This is an Ohio Senate, uh, so there's state Senate, passing a bill mandating that students learn cursive by the end of the fifth grade. The reason this is important is because I think parents and teachers are beginning to see the first fruits of 
having kids go all the way through school and all they can do is print. Remember, they took away cursive because kids had sensory issues. And yes, that was a little bit of sarcasm you heard in my voice because we had two of our kids who had sensory issues. And by sensory issues, I mean the kinds of outside play and inside play and manipulatives that kids used to do to strengthen up their hands so that they could hold a pencil and apply the proper amount of pressure to write properly, which is the precursor to being able to do cursive, somehow, whatever reason, I don't know what the reason was, a couple of our kids didn't have enough of that tensile strength in their hand and shoulder. So instead of me saying, well, my kids shouldn't have to learn cursive, I got handwriting without tears. And when that didn't work, we took them to a place that works with kids who have sensory issues. And they had them doing these they're weird looking little exercises where they, you kind of do the crab crawl and you're on your arms only. And it's basically to build up their shoulder strength. And with, it was less than a school year's worth of therapy for our son before he was literally like writing properly and he had no problem at all. And with our younger daughter, it was the same thing. She, she only did the handwriting without tears program with a therapist there. She didn't have to do the exercises and stuff. There were kids there for other sensory issues, and I saw lots of parents from our school district who were, had their kids there for six weeks or eight weeks or whatever um, the recommendation was because it's kind of like physical therapy. That is the answer. That and having your child spend time at home practicing their cursive, that's the answer. The sign of a well-educated individual, of an educated individual at all, is that they can write and read cursive. It's important. Cursive is learning it is like learning a language. The brain treats learning cursive the same way that it treats learning an additional language. Once those pathways are created for learning cursive, then it acts like a, a um, it acts like a mechanism for learning. It aids in learning. So this is one of the examples that was given to us when we because I, I did some research on it because they wanted to eliminate cursive at our kids' school district, and they did. You had to learn cursive, but you didn't have to, you weren't required to write in it after a certain age, and so kids immediately revert back to printing, which is crazy to me because you can't write as quickly when you print as you can when you're writing in cursive. Cursive aids in learning through note taking. So when a person is speaking to you and you're in a classroom and that person is speaking or lecturing, and you're taking notes. You're engaging your eyes and ears because you're listening to the person. You're looking at them, but you're listening to what they're saying and you're converting what they're saying to you in your ears into written form and you're writing it in cursive and being able to write it in cursive quickly, which doesn't come naturally. You actually have to practice. You have to take notes and over time, your note taking gets faster and faster, which also means the faster you can take notes, the faster you're processing the information that comes in your ears and is going down into your hand. Your brain is converting that information from what you heard into written cursive, which is another language. Your brain treats it like another language. And the faster you can take the notes, the faster you can think and jump from subject to subject. They've done studies on this, so you don't have to take my word for it. Writing in cursive actually aids in faster cognitive ability And it is integral to preparing students to take on the rigors of college-level work. It is integral. So when you hear your school district talking about eliminating cursive, what they're saying is, we don't care if your child's college-ready. And we hear the term college-ready thrown about so much, we already have students who can, you know, marginally write in cursive, not fast, but they can write in it and they can read it, going on to college and they're they're still not college-ready. 
There's so much to being college ready. And that's without this. This is a irrelevant. You know, if you're if you're saying, I'm a, well, my child's not going to college. It's not about your child actually going to college. It's about them being well educated enough to be able to handle college, whether they choose to go there or not. Because we need tradespeople, we need people to go into the military, we need people to go in and work their way up through the ranks and manage retail locations, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not about whether or not a person's going to college and, and, and that's their career path, it's about being ready. And so beyond not being able to read our founding documents, which are originally written in, in cursive, you're like, I have a phone, I have a laptop. But if you needed to read it in paper form, the original document, you can't read it if you can't read cursive. Beyond the fact that you need to be able to write your name in cursive because that is what creates a signature. Your signature is what you put on documents. It's your seal. Beyond all of that, it's the real basic work that goes into moving from elementary and then in middle school. The middle school areas where they start writing long form essays and papers and you're writing it in cursive and you're like, well, most people do that. They type those out. Yeah, but in classical schools, liberal arts schools that are middle school and high school, and especially if your child attends one from kindergarten through 12, we know this from experience because we were in one for uh, five or six years. That school, all of the papers had to be submitted handwritten in cursive. So you're engaging all of your senses and converting that information that you've read and researched, you're converting it from what you know here into the cursive written word on a long form paper, it is a fantastic exercise and it increases cognitive ability. And so this is no surprise to me. In fact, I think we'll see more of this. Hopefully we'll see more of this where parents in charge and really intimately interested and invested in their kids' education and their preparation for life out beyond the home, because that's what we're doing is preparing these kids to leave the home is that parents will demand that schools teach cursive and parents will participate in that process by buying the handwriting without tears workbook. And there are other uh, systems out there and getting those workbooks from the Barnes and Noble or ordering them on Amazon or whatever your local bookstore is that you like books a million. You go into the education section and you find those cursive books. And it's literally about having the kids spend the time slowly tracing over the letters with the pencil to get them used to forming the letters. Now, I remember doing this in uh, like kindergarten and first grade where we would just sit in the classroom and it would be quiet. And sometimes our teacher would put some music on and we would trace over the letters. And it was the, the idea was to trace over them and not lift your pencil until you ended with that loop on the end of the last word. And then you pick up your pencil, and move it over to the next one and not lift it again. And we would sit and do that sometimes for the remainder of the class period and then you would take those papers, she would look at them and she'd put a little red star or an apple or a heart on the ones that were done well. And if yours wasn't done well, she would still put a little check mark or her initials on it just to show I, I looked at this and we're going to keep working. And we would all compare them. Like we'd be packing up our little backpacks and we would, I, what did you get? I got a heart. I got a star. And we would look and we would compliment each other. Yours looks nice. Or yours, mine looks sloppy. No, yours looks okay. We, we were invested in learning it. And we started learning it early. So this is something that's important. Uh, yet another thing for you to pay attention to. You can do it. Yes, we can do it. 
It's not too much for us. It's not too much for God. He never lays more on us than we can handle. You see your kid's school district moving towards eliminating cursive or not requiring cursive. You got to make sure your kids know how to write in cursive. And one place that they can take notes is in the pew at church. I noticed our kids were not taking any notes in church. And I have a little notebook that I put my, it's basically when I hear something the pastor says, and I know I'm like, Lord, that's for me. I write that in my little, my, my notes from the sermon. And we have a fill in the blank handout that we get in church every Sunday. And I was filling that out, but I, I realized I wasn't having like in the middle of the week, things that were happening, weren't hearkening back to the sermon on Sunday. And so I started taking notes again and I had our kids start bringing a notebook and taking notes there. If your kids school has said, there's no more cursive, you should send a letter to the board of education, find some links, send them the links and tell them I'm putting you on notice. This, this isn't working for me. Kids need to write in cursive at school, but you can have your kids taking notes at church in cursive and then discuss the notes after church. What did you find interesting about the pastor's sermon? What did you, what, you know, and when they're in the car and the longer car rides, if you're like me and you had the super minivan, which I've since let go of y'all, I know it's like a big news day. I let go of the minivan y'all I downsized. But when we had the minivan, it had a DVD player in it and all that cool stuff, you know, 20 cup holders and a whole bunch of chargers and the kids would have their phones and their tablets out. But if your kids are smaller and they're not proficient in handwriting, perfect. You get the laptop desk. It's your lap desk. It's supposed to be for a laptop, but you can use books on it. And your kids, while you're waiting in the carpool line, going from school to school to pick up kids, they can trace those letters and work on their handwriting in the car. They can read out loud to you. They can write their own stories in cursive and then draw little pictures and make their own comic books. It's up to us. And these people in Ohio, kudos to them for making this a law so teachers can't eliminate this. All right, that's the show for today. We'll be back with more tomorrow right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. God bless.